Okay. Well, we are uh, obviously in, in church history class. There we go. And we're in the age of... I always have to clarify. It's like, if you're, if you're not in church history class, you're in the wrong class. Um, but we're actually in the age of enlightenment. So everybody's very excited that we, we got through that kind of proto-enlightenment time. Today we're going to talk about Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. Um, we talked about him a little bit last week. And all the people that were like, Boy, that's not the way I understand Cromwell, aren't here this week. So I was trying to clarify some of the stuff, and maybe they'll stroll in. Who knows? But um, he's kind of an important guy for a bunch of different reasons. My brother, uh, who, who's an historian, when he found out that we were talking about Cromwell, he's like, what on earth does that have to do with church history? Why are you talking about the English Civil War in church history? And I'm like, well, because A, we want to try to understand all the, the, the societal effects that have, that have pushed things, but B, this is kind of important for church history, and I start talking about why, and he's like, I, I guess so. Just make sure that you say Cromwell is a horrible human being. I'm probably going to nuance that just a smidge. So, as we talked about, we left off last time. On behalf of, of Parliament, 1649, Cromwell invades Ireland. Uh, and, and Megan really liked his coat of arms when I showed, it, showed her the other day. She's like, oh, he's got a lot of stuff, but... The, he was kind of renowned for this white lion, but she loved the bloody spear points over here. She's like, spear points with blood on the tips? Well, that's fun, fun things. There's spear points on our family crest, so. They uh, No, ours are just normal. His are bloody. Anyway, thanks to the, do you remember Cardinal Rinchini that we talked about last week? Anybody want to toss in anything that you remember because of this guy? This is the guy that uh, Pope Innocent had sent to Ireland. He gave money, he gave ammunition, he gave uh, arms, muskets, things like that, to help the Irish fight off the Puritan English. Because he's like, you're good Catholic Irish, I want you to go fight off the Puritan Protestants. And so, uh, <laughs> I always love it when these things kick in in the middle of the class. Stop it. Anyway. So the Irish loved this guy, and when the Duke of Ormond, the Irish Duke of Ormond, tried to broker a truce with England, where he said, okay, they've agreed that as long as we just do our Catholicism in private, everything is cool. We can do it. it, it there's no war, there's nobody gets killed, and we still get to be Catholic. And Rinuccini said, no, I'll excommunicate anybody who would agree to a treaty like that. Why, Catholicism in private? No way. And I, I, I can respect that. I mean, I can respect... The idea of saying, I don't want to just have to worship in a, in a hole somewhere. But when you don't, when you don't work with stuff that you've got on the table, you have to deal with the consequences. So Rinuccini says, no, excommunicate anybody who agrees to that. And the General Assembly says, that's it. We're not agreeing to that. So, thanks to him, the Confederacy, the Irish Confederacy, resisted any kind of treaty with England. They're like, no, no, we'll just... We will fight, we will do whatever we need to to stay free. And they stood with Charles I against Parliament. They even signed this treaty with Charles's son, Charles II, to support him under the English throne. Like, we will help you, we will help stand against Parliament any way that we can. They also opened Irish ports like Wexford to anti-English privateers and encouraged them to go attack English ships. We're, we're, we're kicking England in the shins, right? As much as we possibly can, which is okay, I guess, if you can get away with it, but if you're basically just poking them until they get mad enough to fight you, you better hope you can win that fight, right? Yeah. Now, they also killed about 10,000 English Protestants from Ulster when they were doing their own uh, uh, rebellion for freedom in 1641. So they're like, yeah, we're totally thumbing our nose to England the whole time. This is going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. So, Cromwell says, I'm invading... We're, sorry, we're back to, we're killing each other for the way you worship and the way you want to believe in God. Theoretically, that's what's going on. But really, when you think about it, what they're saying is, we want to be free from English control. And, and most of us sitting, are sitting here being Irish, or Irish Catholics. And most of the English coming over are Puritans. So, yes, it's Catholics versus Puritans. Except that it's really more Irish versus English but it's being wrapped in Catholic versus Protestant okay. terms. So Cromwell says, that's it, I'm invading, right? Ormond, 
trying desperately to avoid all out war. So like, I, I, I'll stop him. I'll stop him. I'll stop him on the coast. Gets trounced. Just gets pulverized. Cromwell brings over like 35 ships filled with guys. Just a huge invasion force. Over the next couple of years, the new model army that he had created, the guys that look like this, this new model army devastate Ireland. Although, that's the way the Irish remember it, but there was also this pesky plague outbreak and starvation that came with famine and things. So it was more than just pointy things coming from England, but there's a lot of pointy things coming from England. By the end of 1652, in three years, Ireland had surrendered. Cromwell had long since been recalled to England to deal with a third English civil war, because they kept doing these things. And Ireland lost over 618,000 people, 40% of its population in three years. So how do you think the Irish feel about Cromwell? Not so much. They see him as this tyrant, as this butcher, this horrible human being. If you ever want to talk about somebody horrible, if you're Jewish, you talk about Hitler. If you're Irish, you talk about Cromwell. That was short, right? I don't know why Lindsay was right. My brother's right. He's just a horrible human being. Leave it at that. It's a little more complicated than that, all right? When you're dealing with Cromwell, he's a complicated guy. First of all, the, like many stories, it gets worse than the retelling. The original descriptions of these battles weren't as bad as the later descriptions of these battles. That over time he went from that guy that beat us to that guy that massacred us to that evil guy who massacred us to Satan incarnate who killed everybody. And it's like he just kept growing. In fact, when the invasion began, when Cromwell took his troops to Ireland, he specifically ordered his, his officers and, and, and uh, soldiers to be fair to civilians. He said, I, hear, I do hereby warn all officers, soldiers, and others under my command not to do any wrong or violence toward country people or any persons whatsoever unless they be actually in arms or office with the enemy. Unless they're fighting or supporting the fighting, you don't mess with them or their stuff, as they shall answer to the contrary at their utmost peril. Do not mess with civilians. He says, yeah, as for the people of Ireland themselves, what, what thoughts they have in the matter of religion in their own breasts, I, I can't reach that. I can't, I can't legislate them away from their Catholicism. But I shall think it my duty if they just walk honestly and peaceably not to cause them in the least to suffer for the same. If they're going to be Catholic, there's nothing I can do about that. But as long as they, they're, they're peaceable about it, as long as they're honest about it, live and let live. That's, that's what Cromwell said going to Ireland. He was totally ruthless, but he wasn't cruel. Like when they, they laid siege to the coast city, the port city of Droga, he, he, was very, he was very happy about the fact he left maybe 30 people alive of the entire city. It's like, it like 3,500 people that they killed. Left 30 alive. He even sent a warning message to the garrison commander. He said, Sir, having brought the army of the Parliament of England before this place to reduce it to obedience, how about to the end that the effusion of blood may be prevented so that there's not blood everywhere? I thought it fit to summon you uh, to deliver the city into my hands, this garrison into my hands, to their use. If this be refused, you're going to have no cause to blame me. I expect your answer and remain your servant, Oliver Cromwell. I'm just... What? Yeah, yes. That, which is kind of just the way they, they talk about that, but it's also gives you a little bit of his mindset. He's like, I, I'm letting you know. I got 35 ships worth of guys pouring in here. I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of troops. I've got cannon. I've got all this kind of stuff. You're, you're going to go down. Will you surrender? I'll give you the chance to surrender, and we won't shed a drop of Irish blood. But, but you, if you fight us, if you refuse to surrender, I, I'm going to level the place. And, and you can't blame me as if I've done something wrong, which, by the way, that never really works. You can't say, well, you can't blame me. Of course people are still going to blame me. Commander refuses to surrender, and here's the thing. Under the rules of warfare for the day, if a garrison commander refused to surrender, it was kind of expected. You just leveled the whole town. Because that way you go to the next town and you say, surrender, and they say, yes, yes, I will. In fact, you see this in Henry V. If you've ever read the play or seen the play, Henry V, he, uh, they're, they're uh, up against Harfleur, and he's, he's like, please surrender your town. If you don't surrender your town, I'm going to let my men destroy everything here. 
I'll kill every single last person, men, women, children, babies. Everybody dies unless you surrender. And the garrison commander goes, yeah, okay, I'll surrender. At which point Henry says, okay, nobody touch anything. You don't burn anything. You don't loot anything. You don't molest any of the people. They surrender. That's the way this works. That was the way that they understood it. So he didn't give any quarter. He did exactly what he said. His official record about how many civilian townsfolk died was around 700, which is not a good thing, but it's rules of war, right? And this is not like he's trying to lessen the number. He's not trying to pretend anything. He was very, he was very happy about the fact that he's like, yeah, I left maybe 30 people off. I'm not pretending, I'm not hiding anything, right? The Irish Catholic account said the number was more like 4,000 civilians which is 500 people more than the total number of dead bodies involved in the siege. You know, um, well, there's, there's like 3,000 guys at the, at the garrison. Um, there's like 3,500 dead bodies by the end, and you say that out of those 3,500 dead bodies, 4,000 of them were civilians? I think your numbers are off. I don't know which number is good. I'm pretty sure there's a huge difference between 700 and 4,000. I don't know if it's 700, I don't know if it's 4,000, I don't know if it's 2,000. It's kind of a matter of perspective, because Cromwell thought he was completely justified, and the Irish think he's a horrible, horrible, horrible guy. It's complicated. Same could be said of the Siege of Wexford. Remember I talked about Wexford being this port city? Yep, it's a big port city uh, filled with privateers who go attack English ships. Again, he sent a message to the garrison commander. He said, all right. You gave me some terms for your surrender? I'll actually accept those terms. He said, sir, I've had the patience to peruse your propositions, to which I might have returned an answer with some disdain. I might have just said, no, I'm going to burn it to the ground. But, but to be short, yes, all right, I will give the soldiers quarter to, for life and let them go to their several habitations. As for the inhabitants of the city, I shall engage myself that no violence should be offered to their goods, and I shall protect their town from plunder. Okay, we're cool. It, I will accept your terms of surrender, and he included a few others of his own. He's like, I will accept your terms of surrender if you will do this. Everything's going to be good. Nobody dies, right? But then some doofus surrendered to troops. Some royalist captain in the city opened the doors and said, okay, we give up. Before the terms of surrender were actually officially accepted from both sides. So, Cromwell and the garrison commander are talking on a high level. Somebody opened the doors to the parliamentary army and said, Okay, we give up. So the parliamentarian forces just poured into the city and started killing, burning, looting, everything. Because they're like, you guys, you guys just opened your doors. There was no agreement between us. Therefore, we can do anything that we want. And it wasn't on Cromwell's orders. However, to be fair, he didn't stop them. He's like, later when somebody said, well, why did you let them do that? He's like, we didn't have any terms agreed upon. They opened their doors with no terms agreed upon. Plus, I don't feel really bad. They spent a decade killing Englishmen on the high seas. I'm not sure I feel tremendously bad that this happened. So you go, well, so is he a fair guy or a bad guy? Is he a butcher or and a jerk, or is he a legit commander? It's complicated. I don't want to give him a pass, nor do I want to say, yes, he was a butcher. Nonetheless, Specifically, those two battles, those two massacres, are what the Irish tend to see as saying, oh, he's this cruel tyrant, he's a butcher, even though neither one was technically due to any inordinate amount of cruelty or tyranny on Cromwell's part. Both of them were specifically following the rules of war, but the Irish are like, no, 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 we hate it. And it, all this massacring was under his watch and under his authority. So he is responsible, even though he didn't order it. Secondly, because I said, first off, the, the battles are a little different. Secondly, those massacres, and, 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 and later on there were towns where it got burned, crops got burned. Uh, the English used starvation as a weapon against the Irish, keeping them starved uh, so that they would, they would capitulate. All that stuff was carried out after Cromwell went back to England. It wasn't Cromwell who did it. It was his successor, Henry Ireton, who did all that stuff. So is that Cromwell being a tyrant or Ireton being a tyrant? You don't even know how much Cromwell even knew about that, though Ireton was Cromwell's son-in-law. So it's like, I'm connected to this guy, I handpicked this guy, but I'm not the one actually making these decisions. Again, it gets complicated. Under Ireton's command, 
All the lands and goods of the Irish uh, Catholics were confiscated. Anyone, even civilians who resisted in any way, were imprisoned or were sold as indentured service, servants and sent to Barbados. Um, Catholic priests were exiled or imprisoned, and if they ever tried to go back to Ireland, they'd be executed. No Catholic worship of any kind was allowed, even in private. This is what happened. He go, well, way to go, Rinuccini. Good, I'm so glad you fought that. I'm so glad we didn't agree with that, that, that treaty. It ended up so much better for us this way. Cromwell didn't object to any of this. But he also didn't order any of this. So, you know, is, is Cromwell clean of all this kind of cruelty? Is he complicit in this sort of cruelty? Is he at least attached to it? It's complicated. He's remembered as this heinous tyrant in, in, in Ireland, but you go, yeah, but the worst of the stuff isn't stuff he did. It's what Ireland did. Anyway, um, it's, but, but he did hate Catholicism, and his, his hatred is so powerful and so memorable, his name has actually become a curse in Ireland. The worst thing that you could possibly say to somebody is, Macht Cromwellort. May the curse of Cromwell be upon you. That's how much I hate you. They hate this guy a lot. They hate this guy so much. On the anniversary of his death, every year, there's still people in Ireland that burn him in effigy, that, that hang him in effigy, because they really, really hate him really, really hate Cromwell. And when Irishmen hate, they hate deep and long. There's, there's just no end to it. You see why, given what we were just talking about, why the Irish tend to look at Cromwell as like the devil incarnate, and why current Protestant Catholic relations in Ireland really, and their hatred for English in general, really kind of are founded at this time. You go, they lost 40% of their population in three years. So they, there has to be of the bad guy. If you can put a face to that, you're going to put a face to that, right? Was Cromwell the bad guy? No. Did he do some heinous things that resound in history? Yeah. Did he break any rules in doing it? No. Followed the rules of war. Did exactly what he said he was going to do. He, it's complicated, is what I'm getting at. But yes, this is a t-shirt, by the way, in Ireland. Right now? It's an, an Irish Republican army said, freedom first, then peace. You know, that's, that's, that's what you need to do. Brits out. I love, I love that. This, this, just in case you missed the subtlety of this t-shirt. Brits, go home. You got fine. Anyway. 1650. Scots declare Charles II to be king. He's been bouncing around in exile. The English don't want him. To gain uh, the, their trust, to make a covenant with them, Charles officially renounced the Church of England to accept Scottish Presbyterianism, which is why the Scottish that worked with them at this time were called Covenanters, because they made a covenant with Charles II. How do you feel like that's... Does that have any importance, that he renounces the Church of England to, uh, to accept Scottish Presbyterianism? You are the... He's been the poster child for the Church of England. And all these Puritans are saying, Church of England, high Anglicanism is bad. Two Charleses in a row have said, no, 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 Church of England, good. This one now says, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, <clears throat> the whole thing of um, your religion being dictated by the king, by the king is, you know, it seems so foreign to us. Yeah, well, and what's interesting is you go, and this flip-flops that, right? In all of Europe, it's whatever religion the king has, that's what religion the country is. And he goes, okay, whatever religion the country is, that's what religion I'll be, if you let me be your king. Both those things are very foreign to us. And it torqued off all of his English supporters. Everybody in England that said, no, well, I, I, I disagree with all these roundheads who are running parliament, they're like, well, I don't like Charles either. He just, he just went to us. That's not fair. And the Scottish said, we will back you onto the English throne. You, we will support you getting your English throne back, and so we'll be one united kingdom again. Thus launching the third English Civil War, right? There's three of these things in rapid succession within the span of like a decade. Cromwell gets called back from Ireland to deal with that, and he turns it over to Ireton, who went and did all the stuff that he did. So he's going to invade Scotland. What's interesting is this is a different parliament that's calling him back than what we've talked about before. It's a slightly different take of it. 1648, Cromwell's superior officer, a guy named Thomas Fairfax, Black Tom, they call him because he's dark, 
uh, ordered that everyone who disagreed with the military's handling of the political situation be forcibly removed from Parliament. If you don't think we're doing this right, you go home. Parliament will only have people who support us. So, in December, he sent a guy named Colonel Pride with the new Marble Armory to clear and purge Parliament of everybody who disagreed with them. To this day, this roundhead Puritan control of Parliament is the only coup d'etat in English history. When, when the military comes in and says, we're controlling everything. But even today, it becomes, it's something that the British are still terrified of, that one of these days a conservative army is going to take over the British government again. You'll see this in English literature, you'll see this in English movies. Yeah, they were terrified of this with Maggie Thatcher because she was an extremely strong conservative leader. They're like, she's going to totally do this. She's going to clear Parliament. She's going to... because it's in their history already. Anyway, because all that's left is a remnant or a rump of the previous Parliament, this, this group is often referred to in history as the Rump Parliament. So if you ever hear that, that's what that's getting at. So technically, Cromwell is being brought back by the Rump Parliament to invade Scotland. And even then, he said, he, he, he contacted the Scottish, and he's like, guys, I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it possible. Please, just consider the possibility you might be mistaken. Maybe you've got the wrong guy. Maybe you're doing the wrong thing. Before this leads to war, chew on the possibility that maybe you've done something wrong. Just consider it, which they didn't. Scottish stood by Charles II. Cromwell invaded on, on Parliament's orders, invaded a city just across the border called Dunbar, and just annihilates their army in Dunbar. Just kicks their booty. At which point Charles goes, wait a minute. If he's in Dunbar, I'll be not in Dunbar. And so he takes his troops and he goes down to march on London. He's like, aha, the whole new model army is up in Scotland. I'm totally going to go take my throne now. He abandons the Scottish, takes his troops away, and says, Yay! I mean, I just, I get this mental picture of this, this stupid, dopey look at his face going, This will work! You go, Nobody in England likes you because the Puritans think you're an Anglican who just sold out Anglicanism. The Anglicans think you're an Anglican who just sold out Anglicanism. The Scottish aren't going with you because you just abandoned them. Nobody likes you. What on earth makes you think you're actually going to win? And so sure enough, Cromwell finds him, catches up to him long before he ever gets to London, beats the snot out of him, and he's back in custody by 1651. That's the end of the Civil War. Except that Charles somehow, and nobody knows exactly how this works, Charles somehow escaped from custody, went through France to settle in the Netherlands because he had family there in the Netherlands. So we're not done with Charles II. This guy just... Just keep sticking around for some reason. 1651, you go, yay, end of the Civil War, everything's great. And you go, yeah, but now Cromwell starts fighting Parliament. Charles is out of the picture, at least for the time being. And so Cromwell says, I, I, want, I want to create a new Church of England that is tolerant to all Protestants. Again, Cromwell is remembered as this guy who is completely intolerant of anything other than Puritanism. He says, I specifically want a Church of England that's reformed. That, that you can be a Puritan, you can be a, an Anglican, you can be an Anabaptist, and still be part of the Church of England. In fact, I wanted to tolerate the rights even of Catholics and Jews to practice their religion. Not you know, privately. They don't get to have Catholic churches out and about. But let's let them be Catholics. Let's let Jews be Jews. In fact, He's like, I'm going to overturn King Edward. Remember Longshanks? The, uh, I'm going to, remember, uh, I'm going to turn, overturn his 1290 Edict of Expulsion. I'm going to specifically, officially ask Jews to return to England. Could you, could you come back? It's a safe place now. Please come back. And what's his rationale? He specifically tells Whitehall, he, he quotes Romans 10, he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all of them. And how are they ever going to hear the gospel if we push them onto another continent? Who's going to share the gospel with them if all we ever do is push them away? Draw them back and share the good news with them so that they can become Christians. That's Cromwell. Again, he's a complicated guy, right? In fact, his loudest opponent, the guy that stood against him, was William Prynne. Do you remember this guy? Of oh, I got my ears chopped off by Charles for being a dissenter. Charles, William Prynne gets up and goes, we don't want any Jews and Catholics here. 
Catholic chopped my ears off. I don't want any Jews or Catholics here. It's just for Puritans. It's our party, and only ours. And Cromwell's like, no. Read Romans. You can't read Romans and say it's only our party. Complicated guy. Anyway, so he says, I want to reform the Church of England, and I want to hold new open elections to refill the empty seats that Fairfax purged. Fairfax had come, came in and, and took all those guys away. I, let's let's open, open up the elections. No more of this. Only get to be in Parliament if you agree with Fairfax and Cromwell. Let's get the best people in here. Let's work to reunite the United Kingdom. I mean, Ireland is off doing its own thing. Scotland is off doing its own thing. Let's, 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 let's work on this. Let's fix this. We can fix this. Parliament actively resisted everything that he was saying, all of the reforms. So in 1653, Cromwell said, all right, new, new idea. How about you name a 40-man, you guys name, Parliament, you name a 40-man government who's going to move forward. Every single one of you abdicate your position. We're going to redo this. If you can't fix it, we're going to reboot. All right? You name a commission, and they will, do, they will set up what kind of government we have. You pick the guys. And they said, that's a great idea, and then did absolutely nothing with it. They, they totally agreed. They said, you're right. We're mired in this. We can't make any decisions. We will pick 40 guys that will actually do this. And then they twiddled their thumbs and all that kind of stuff. They didn't even get a workable constitution in place. Two years, never got a constitution. They're just kind of running things in part because all they were interested in, this particular rump parliament, was redistributing all the king's money. There's a whole lot of money in the king's treasury, and all of it was getting funneled into the pockets of all the people in the rump parliament. So, April 1653, Cromwell brings in troops to clear out the building, and he says, you are no parliament. I serve parliament, you're not a parliament. I'm, no, I'm done. And he claims the spirit of God comes upon him. He's like, I couldn't do anything else. Had to. God himself said that this had to stop. Yeah, well, this is the, still part of that whole roundhead. Yeah, I would say. And, but again, this is the third time now that Parliament has gotten cleared by somebody, right? Or attempted. Charles tried to come in and, and boot out Parliament because he didn't like anybody disagreeing with him. And Fairfax came in and kicked out Parliament. And by the way, Charles' argument is, because God's on my side, you're just a bunch of guys, right? Fairfax kicked everybody out because he's like, you don't agree with me, and I only want people in here to agree with me. I'll give Cromwell credit that when he came out to kick out Parliament, he's like, you guys are correct. You guys are accomplishing nothing. And yet it's still the same sort of thing, isn't it? You can't serve Parliament and kick out Parliament, can you? And it's the same basic argument. So this is still part of the Rump Parliament. I and mean, this is still that, that clump of people who are... But I mean, how many years since the Rump Parliament was started when, Tom, when Fairfax did his? Uh, how many years after? Two years. Or no, 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 oh, I'm sorry. I, I lied. Five years. Okay. Five years. Uh, in, the, in their place, he, he creates his 40-man commission. He's like, if you guys would, you guys agreed that there should be a 40-man commission, but you wouldn't create it. So I'm creating it. You guys go figure out what kind of government we should have. Technically, he argued, all I'm doing is doing the last thing Parliament actually said right, which was that you agreed that there should be a 40-man commission. So he's, he he's like, yes, I'm going against Parliament, but technically I'm still just following what Parliament already said that they would do. It's interesting, there's a 1970 movie named uh, Cromwell that was well cast and is really interesting and historically goofy. But they, they put an interesting line in the, in the uh, lips of the character of, of Lord Thomas Fairfax, the guy who cleared Parliament. He's given this non-historical but extremely ironic line. It's like, I seem to remember we cut off the head of a king for such as this. Didn't, didn't we kill a king for doing this? Now, it's ironic because, you're right, that's exactly what the king had done. But what's crazy ironic is that the movie glosses over the fact that it was Fairfax that did this first. I'm like, of all people you gave this line to? Read a bark, people. Anyway, just, I'm just saying. He does kind of look like it. Anyway, so this commission says we're creating a new parliament but we're doing it not based on social rank, but on perceived religious fervor. Are you a solid Christian? I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're a barber. We're putting you into Parliament if you genuinely love the Lord. And Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> now, 
Cromwell didn't say that. The 40-man commission said that. But it's a 40-man commission put together by Cromwell. So again, you go, so how much was he behind this and how much was he not? It's hard. It's really hard, especially when a lot of the contemporary people loved Cromwell or hated Cromwell and nothing in between. It's really hard to figure out where you go, oh wait, to what degree is Cromwell making everybody do stuff that he wants them to do? It's one possibility. Or is everybody going, apparently the only person that's got his head screwed on straight is Cromwell. I will say, when I look at history, like 90% of what Cromwell did, I go, yes, that was exactly the right thing to do and thoroughly the wrong way to do it. But yeah, I totally get why you did this. You seem to be the only one who genuinely cares about honoring God and genuinely cares about getting the country straight. So when they do stuff like this, is this because he's a tyrant who's controlling things? Possibly. Or is it because they looked around and went, who would we put in charge? This is the only guy that seems to actually care more about making things work right than making himself in charge. Six months later, this Parliament of Saints, as they called it, dissolved itself because they were like, strangely, barbers don't know how to rule a country. Um, go figure. And amazingly, like 200 years or 150 years later, the French didn't learn from this. They're like, yes, we're putting tailors in charge of the country. And you go, that doesn't work well. This is really bad. <laughs> These guys went, I don't think we know what we're doing. What we need is a new protectorate. And so they create a whole new way of doing government where they say, Cromwell, you are now Lord Protector of England. Now, this is his, his new crest that he uses. And it's an interesting one because you'll notice that it's got the flags of England and Scotland and Ireland. And Wales is just another English flag. Wales kind of not giving them their own thing. But anyway, so it's England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. And in the center is Cromwell's white lion, right? Again, is that Cromwell saying, England is, is revolving around me? Or is that him saying, I put myself in, this, in the center of everything and, I, and I'm trying to make this right? It's all a matter of perspective. Is he an egotist or is he a servant? I'm not going to try to argue, which is just, he's, he's a little bit of both, actually. This is not the first time they've been using the term Lord Protector. If you ever have you ever heard anybody introduce a monarch where they say, he is the king of this and the queen of that, or the, the empress of this and the da, 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 and the Lord Protector. They have this long list of titles. Uh, even even like Prince William has it's got this, this whole long list of titles. And you just go, man, it, he's got more titles than he has years in his life. How, how do you get all that? Lord Protector is one of the titles that monarchs have held for centuries. But in point of practice, it was usually used for any kind of royals who were the regents of young kings. So like uh, when Louis XIV uh, took the throne at age five, his mother, Queen Anne of Austria, was considered Lord Protector of Louis. And thus of France, because she's watching over him until he's old enough. They decided this is a good title for what we're wanting for Cromwell. Cromwell's like, yeah, this is what I am, because he basically said, I'm a regent. I'm overseeing England. I'm a regent of England. I'm just protecting it until the legitimate heir comes to the throne. I'm not putting Charles II on there. The guy's a goofball. But, but if we can get a good king, then that's great. I will step down, and the king will, will be the king. That makes sense, right? I'm just protecting... Usually, I mean... That when someone comes to power, they're like, sure, I'll step down. When the, when the right guy comes in, it's like, who's the right guy? You that know? is the question. Now, there have been times in history when that has happened, but it's kind of notable, right? Anybody think of any times in history where, where somebody said, I've been handed absolute power, and then I handed it back? George Washington, they're like, we, you can be king. And he said, no, I'll be president. They said, okay, you'll be president for life. He said, no. No, I won't. That we're not doing this. I didn't get rid of one George. Put another George on the throne. No, um, Cincinnatus, as this general in, in Rome that said that it was handed absolute power, and he won everything he needed to do. He was amazing, and then handed it all back and went back to be a farmer. Like that's that's what I am. That's what I that's what I wanted to do. Um, Eisenhower was handed more power than any human being has ever had in the history of mankind. 
He oversaw more ordnance, more men, more troops, more sheer raw power. And at the end of World War II, he's like, and now I'm done. Now I'll become president. But, that's, but still, and it's like, there have been times in the past where people said, I hold massive amounts of power, and now I'm letting it go. But you're right, that's, that's notable because power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, then he says, nope, I'm just a regent. I'm just a regent. And he said, I, there are two things in particular, specifically, that I want to accomplish in this regency. First one's obvious. i got to fix this. We've had three civil wars in a row. The government is in shambles. We're going to fix this. Right? Got to, it's got to start with that. Unfortunately, if you remember William Lenthal, the guy that has been the speaker, for, he's the guy that stood up to Charles I and said, nope, I serve parliament, could not get this new parliament to work together at all. They refuse to work together. They're constantly just badgering one another. None of the bills ever brought before them were ever passed. All they did was argue, eat, drink, and make money. Including the 84 bills. None of the 84 bills that Cromwell's protectorate tossed out as reforming government. Trying to get rid of corruption, all this kind of stuff. None of them. What do you mean? Making money. Well, you, there, there's no reason to pass reform. They're happy. Yep, yeah, you can make that argument. Yeah, arguably. I mean, you want to look into. Well, you are the ones who said we want you to be a Lord Protector, and he's like, okay. Here's what we should do then. No. Agreeing with one another. In all seriousness, I mean, there's something to be said for. Part of what they were doing was just saying, we want things to remain the way they are. Um, Every tiny little nuance of every bill got debated to the point where it was just, it, it was a joke. It got lost in committee. Everything got lost in the committee. So um, there were different parties, different factions, and, and, and they had vested interests that they would not let go of. So in large part, it really does come down to most of the stuff that they're, they're debating about is debating. You know, I, just, I just want to keep debating. I don't want to actually make some decisions. But if your country's not going well... How are they getting enough money anyway with taxes and all that stuff? No, they can still tax people. But people aren't making money and, and all that. If the country's not healthy, I just... The country's not being run healthy, but individuals are making money. People are making money in the state of Illinois. Illinois, how many billion? Is it like one point... Was it? 1.9, 1.6? The dyslexia in my head, I can't remember. 1.9, 1.6 billion dollars in debt in the state of Illinois. And yet, Aaron Schock is making lots of money. Why? You know, so it's like... That's true. Um, the individual on the street would say, um, in general, I don't know. I mean, there's no more civil war. I guess things are going okay. You know, and, and Cromwell's going, we can't make a law. We can't fix this. This is going to be so much better than what it is. So January 1654, Cromwell dissolves that parliament. At which point you're just like, okay, whatever, whatever pass I wanted to give you, whatever benefit of the doubt I want to give you, Cromwell, you can't keep throwing down that same card. You, nobody's going to want to be in Parliament if they know that if you're not happy with it, you're just going to kick them out. Again, I look at it and I go, oh, I would have been upset with them too. I totally get the rationale for what you're doing. The why makes total sense. Your what is totally whacked. You can't do this. So instead, he set up a system of major generals, kind of like military governors. He's like, martial law across England, we've got, I think, 11? It's 11 different military governors all around England. You guys are going to run England. We're going to get this right. We're going to fix it. And very quickly, the major generals are like, we need a parliament! We this is crazy! I can't just make England into a military garrison. We need a body of legislators to make this all work. So they make a new, new parliament. They're going to make it right this time. This time it's going to totally work. Now, what's interesting is, this parliament um, tries to exert their authority. They, they actually lessen taxes. They're like, well, if we don't have all these wars and stuff, we don't need quite so many taxes. So the guy on the street goes, Woohoo! I like Cromwell! They end the war with the Dutch. They've been at war with the Dutch, the Anglo-Dutch War, since 1652. And they're like, yep, we're done with that. Let's make peace. We can't afford to keep doing this. Which is great. But it means that Charles couldn't get help from the Netherlands like he had hoped to. Remember, he ran to the Netherlands with his family there? And all of a sudden, England and the Dutch are cool with each other. 
What do you do? If everybody in the Netherlands is supposed to be working with, and, and Holland and that whole area is supposed to be working with, uh, with the English, are they really going to support your backing of attacking the English? You can't. So he turns to Spain. He goes, wait. And the chin, the Habsburg lip and chin. But she said, you go, wait, 70 years ago, wasn't there this whole Spanish Armada going to destroy England thing? We hate Spain. He's like, well, but Scotland doesn't like me. The Netherlands and Holland, they won't support me. Yeah, but the enemy of my enemy is the I guess. But for an English king to say, I'm going to go cozy up to the, to the German Habsburgs who are in charge of Spain. Ay, ay, ay. It's probably better than Ireland. It is probably better than Ireland, right? I said he went Presbyterian, I don't know. I don't think yeah. he has any loyalty. And, and of course, this guy's Catholic, right? Yeah. So now, <laughs> like, uh, any port in the storm. Anyway. But the, the, the Parliament also said, well, wait a minute. We established with Charles I that we're actually a court. We're not just a legislative body, but we get to try people. We get to make decisions. Charles was like, by what authority do you ever get to judge me? And they said, well, we're the highest authority in the land. We're a bunch of elected people and, and appointed people, and we get to act as if we were a Supreme Court. That's our authority. And they're like, well, let's, uh, let's do that. We get to be a Supreme Court. Let's, let's try some cases. For instance, the case of James Naylor, a Quaker, Remember the Quakers, the guys who are like, whatever God lays in your heart, that's what you do, right? Quaker, who said, God told me to reenact Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem by riding into Bristol on Palm Sunday the same way. And my buddies are going to throw palm branches down and stuff. It'll be great. It'll honor Jesus. Parliament said, I'm pretty sure that doesn't honor Jesus. I'm pretty sure that was a bad thing to do, James. George Fox, the guy who founded Quakers, went, yeah, it's a bad thing to do, James. He's like, James ran into imaginations and a company with them, and they raised up a great darkness in the nation. James, you're a crazy person. Which is interesting, because James is just doing what Quakers are supposed to do. Isn't that inherently the danger? When you say, whatever God lays on your heart, who, who can judge that? Whatever, whatever God lays on your heart, okay, I want to sacrifice a goat, because God said so. I can't tell you no! Because if you say God said so, who am I to say no? But of course, there's always somebody else that says, and God said you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe I should have probably put some other parameters other than whatever God says. Because if Michael says God said X, and Randy jumps up and says, no, God says not X. i got to wait for somebody else to jump up and go, no, God says Randy's right. You know, it's like, it's, it's really complicated. James says, no, I'm totally, this is a great idea. I love this. So, Parliament decides that they have the right to act as a court of law and convict him of blasphemy. So, they said, James Naylor shall be put in the pillory, well, there's stocks, okay, uh, in the city of Westminster for the space of two hours on Thursday next. And then will be whipped by the hangman through the streets. And then be put in the pillory again from the hours of 11 to 1 on the following Saturday. For those that had to work on Thursday and didn't get to see him, we're putting him back in on the weekend. And then we're going to have his tongue bored through with a red-hot iron. Because oh. that's what they're doing here. They're boring through his tongue. Oh. And then we're going to brand him with the letter B for blasphemer, so that the rest of his life everybody knows that he was a horrible, horrible blasphemer. And then we're going to send him to Bristol, where he's going to be paraded through the city on horseback with his face backward, because not only is that humiliating, but it's kind of undoing the blasphemous act that he did. And then he's going to be brought back to London and sent to the tower, and he's going to be kept at hard labor by order of Parliament for like the next two years. The guy was absolutely destroyed. I mean, his life was utterly destroyed. But that makes them, that makes them not a court of law, per se, but like a religious court. Like, I don't know. I guess but, like, being an American, I'm all like, the courts can't try me for something religious. Okay, yeah. A, that is a modern American taking on stuff. And even then, in modern America, sure we do. We still do the exact same thing. Not too awful long ago, Sodomy was still illegal. Why? Because it's immoral. Now, saying sodomy is immoral is becoming a hate crime, which makes it illegal. We still do this, right? To, to small degrees, we still legislate morality. We still say, because of my religious views, you don't get to do things. Whether that's liberals or, or conservatives, whoever's in power, we still love to do this. Because we're in charge, we get to legislate your morality. James Naylor is a snapshot of this Puritan-legislated, military-controlled England. 
This is what happens when you say we're going to have a, a we're going to have a, a a legal system based on who's the most biblically solid. You know that's that sounds really good. And everybody, when I said Parliament of Saints, everybody's like, neat. Oh, neat. You know, right. But now you're basing law on what you think the Bible is saying. And now you can because laws aren't just made; they have to be enforced. You have to enforce legally enforce what you think the Bible is saying. It has become totally intertwined. So there is no such thing as, well, but that's a, that's a religious thing. How can a, how can a secular legal court make a religious decision? You go, because that's exactly the way they're viewing. All right, which leads to the second thing, because I said there were two things that Cromwell wanted to do. One, he wanted to heal the nation politically, but second, he's like, we need to, we need to fix the spiritual life of England. England is messed up. This is between whack jobs like, like Naylor and the Quakers, Catholicizers like Charles the First, rampant sinning. Because this at this time, especially if you read Shakespeare, you get a sense of this. Marriage is a joke. The concept of marriage is a joke at this time. Uh, what we would consider affairs were so common that they didn't even consider them affairs back then. Um, Everybody was sleeping with at least a couple of different people. Uh, people called it marriage if you just lived together for an extended period of time that we now call common law, husband and wife things. It was a joke. Pickpockets, prostitutes, everywhere. Alcoholism, rampant. It was a nasty place. Uh, Reformation era, Renaissance era, and early Enlightenment era England is a foul place. So he said, we need to, we need to fix the, the theology, the morality of the people of England. So, he outlawed Christmas. I don't know if that was the first thing he did, but what do you make a chuckle for? Christmas evil. <laughs> Most Puritans of the day, Cromwell agreed with him. He said, Christmas is a celebration. Were they saying it Um, sort of. <laughs> um, remind me, after class, I can talk to you about some of the interesting traditions in Europe about Christmas. But... A lot of what we do as Christmas celebration is totally pagan. It's like we put it on December 25th because that's when the the Roman Saturnalia festival ended with the birthday of the unconquered sun, the birth of a god. And so Rome went, oh, totally. That's when Jesus was born. Odds are it was in the spring. Shut up. No, here. This is great. We'll, we'll have parties. We'll give gifts because that's what they did at Saturnalia. All that stuff was from Roman pagan stuff. Uh, in Cromwell's time, everybody got crazy drunk at those kind of parties. Think of it like the worst examples of like the office Christmas party that you can think of. That's the way it always was back then. Everybody just got drunk, had sex with people. It's like, yeah, Christmas. Even today, our cultural representations are what? The Druidic holly and ivy, the Roman Christmas tree, um, the Scandinavian jolly old Yule elf. It's all pagan. That part is all pagan. Now, does that mean that it's inherently evil to do? I don't know if you necessarily want to go there, but they did. He's like, yeah. The fact that some people also mention Christ during Christmas does not overweigh or overarch or outweigh the fact that all the other stuff that people do. It's like you, all the stuff we do is all pagan. No, 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 no. No Christmas. In fact, if the people smelled you cooking a goose on Christmas, I mean, seriously. You had soldiers that would barge into your home and say, we smell the goose you're cooking. You're celebrating Christmas, aren't you? It's like Burger Meister Meister Burger. You know, it's like, no, no toys. You're going to prison. Any way that you're showing any kind of falling of Christmas, you could go to prison for. They also banned theaters. Because they said, oh no, acting is basically for con artists, and the theaters are places of sinfulness. Because they were. Forget the Globe Theater for just one second. Just forget that for a second. Most actors were part of traveling troops that would come and set up, and everybody would come and watch them in your town. And while you were watching them, they had put pickpockets in, in, in the audience, and the, the actors were distracting you so the pickpockets could steal you blind. Or would go to your house while you were at the, the, the theater and rob you blind. That's what actors did. They're totally right. Which is why the Globe was such a big to-do. Because they're like, no, we're keeping this fairly legit. And yet, you still had unofficial pickpockets in, in, in the audience and things, and they kept having problems with people getting all drunk and rowdy um, in, the, in the cheap seats, people like having sex in the aisles and stuff like that because they're out and they're excited. 
In fact, again, if you if you read um, if you read some of Shakespeare's plays and they're talking about how the how the uh, the people in the cheap seats are acting, they'll even make in the middle of monologues they'll even say, "And for you people in the cheap seats, settle down and listen." Parliament also banned most pubs and inns because they said, "Well, it's pretty much a hotbed of prostitution because it pretty much was." You'd be amazed at how many derivations of this painting there are from this standpoint, from this time period, of some guy fondling some woman who's got her hand in his purse. And I looked for a, for a painting of this, and I was like, I found like 47,000 different paintings like this. Because that's a lot of what happened. You know, that's what happened at public houses. That's what happened at, at inns. They banned sports, especially on Sunday. Pretty much doing anything on Sunday. Taking Sunday strolls. Anything on a Sunday breaks the Sabbath. And anything that even looks like you're breaking the Sabbath, punishable by prison or fines. Plus, you don't want to be wasting time with sports. You could be honoring God. You could be praying. Here you are playing football. You could be praying. Playing golf, you could be doing something for God. Also, they banned uh, the colorful dresses and makeup. In fact, it was not at all uncommon for major generals to send their troops to grab women off the street, take them inside, and scrub their makeup off. If they genuinely believed that you were made up because you're wanting to be a prostitute, you could go to prison for it. That is a snapshot of Puritan controlled England. 1657, Parliament said, Cromwell will make you king. You've been doing this well, you've been in charge of this for four years, let's make this official. You get to be king. He spent six weeks chewing on this. I mean, his first thought is, no, 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 no. He even said, no, no, no. And they said, think about it. He spent six weeks thinking about it. He's like, this would legitimize everything. And I wouldn't have to keep making myself in charge. I wouldn't have to keep saying, I'm in charge. I'm I would be in charge. And because I have sons, they would be in charge after me. And we could make sure that this line continues. And that, man, it's awful tempting. It's awful tempting. But he ultimately said, no, no, no. I would not seek to set up that which providence hath destroyed and laid in the dust. I would, not, I would not build Jericho again. After God ripped down the walls of Jericho, I'm not putting them back up again. And he made, pardon me, he made an interesting comment. He said, you know, all things being equal, I would have rather just stayed home and raised sheep. I, I have no desire to actually govern. And multiple things that he said, even though, yeah, arguably he is something of an egotist, Multiple things that he said over the years suggest that he really did feel this way. He's like, all things being equal, I'd rather not be doing this. I, I'd rather not be a cavalry officer. I'd rather not be running around killing people in Ireland and Scotland. I'd rather not be trying to run a, a government with you monkeys. I'd rather just have stayed home and been a gentleman rancher like I'd originally planned. I just couldn't get past the fact that I saw what needed to be done. I could do it. And nobody else was doing it. I saw a need to, to help out with cavalry, and so I joined the cavalry, and I was really, really good at it. And then, because I rose in the ranks with that, I, I, I was involved in politics, and I kept seeing people do this badly. I, I couldn't just sit home and do nothing. Now, is that him saying, really, really, I'd, I'd like to be Cincinnatus. I would really like to have just gone back home. That's, that's what I'd like to do. Is that him being genuinely selfless? Or is that him saying, I would have loved to have gone home, but I'm the only one that knew what was going on. I'm the only one that could do this. God wants me to do this, and only me. Is this him being selfless, or is this him being self-absorbed? I, I really don't want to come down too hard on either side of that, because he's really complicated. And, 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 and depending on the situation, it might have even been both. It might have even been that at, at times he really is like, I, I, I'd rather not have done this. But I felt compelled, and since I'm the only one who can do it, you go, nah, stop. I know. I'm not. Yeah. I know that I fall into this. Most of us at one point or another go, well, I'm the only one that can do this. You go, um, no, you're not. There are other people that could do this. There really are other people that could do this. But you, you get yourself in this mindset where you're like, well, I see what needs to be done. I'll just do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, no, they should do it. You know, no, no, no. I'll do it. I'll do it. They did dress him in purple robes and start calling him your highness at this point. They had kind of a re-up, you know, like a recertification ceremony. They, they, they didn't give him a scepter, they didn't give him a crown, but they did put a purple robe on him, they did start calling him your highness and all that kind of stuff. He sat on a special chair. It's interesting, though, that if they felt that way about him, that he should be their king, 
in the parliament wouldn't go along and try to clean things up that he wanted to do. You would, that is, yeah. I, I, I'm amazed at how many times in history or in general practice um, we've had a couple of presidents in the last handful of presidents that have basically thumbed their nose at the Secret Service and said, um, I refuse to do what you tell me to do to take care of myself. But, you know, protect me. And the Secret Service goes, well, if you want us to protect you, you need to not do this that you're planning. This, if it puts you out in the open, there's nothing we can do to protect you. You, you, can't, you can't do this. The president goes, yeah, but I want to. So just make sure I'm safe. But can't. You, you're tying our hands. Could you please, if you want us to do our job, just help a little bit? Like, nope, but you have to do your job or else I'm going to fire you and you're going to get in serious trouble if anything happens to me. Just do your job. Just do your job. I can't do my job because you're stupid. I have a feeling that's a lot the way uh, this went down. Is Cromwell's like, you like me, you say, go fix England. And I say, here's how we fix England. Part of what you need to do is, you need to stop doing this. They go, no, but go ahead and fix England. So, I think that would drive him bonkers. Now, 1658, Cromwell dies. And he dies fairly abruptly. Gets malaria, probably as a result of urinary tract infection, and passes away at 59. Buried with this huge funeral. Massive funeral. Just like, actually, it's very similar to the funeral that they gave to, to James I. They're like, a king's funeral. Nothing but love for you. His son, Richard, they say, even though Cromwell said this should not be an hereditary thing, how about Richard? You're, 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 you're Cromwell's son. Why don't you be Lord Protector of England? And so Richard steps up and says, yes, I'll do it. And he stinks at it. He's so bad. Oh, he's so bad. He's so bad that within nine months they're like, okay, could you please step down from Lord Protector of England? Because you're really, really not very good at this. Which is why, uh, well, I'll back up and say this. So that means everything that Cromwell, everything that Cromwell worked on, for all that time, it was only as strong as the leader is. And his son was a bad leader. Everything falls apart. Everything that he set up, all of his reforms, everything just falls apart. Now, the Irish are going, woo -hoo, you, woo -hoo, you know. But, uh, but if you're in England, you say, well, actually, this worked. Of course, even the people who hate Cromwell will go, yeah, well, Hitler made the trains run on time. So... But everything falls apart, which is why Richard has become known as Tumble Down Dick. That's what everybody started calling him. It's like, yep, thanks to you, everything fell apart. Congratulations. But that's also why England specifically restored the monarchy and asked Charles II to come in and be king. <laughs> the guy that nobody liked. Nobody likes this guy. He's like a bad penny. Yes! They're like, <laughs> he's just sitting there in Spain going, like, he gets a letter going, hey, would you like to be king? He's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like that. So, no, so this is referred to as the restoration. No, we never learn from history, which is of course why we're having a history class. So we get to there and go, hey, I remember when the well, if, if if we could just get conservative Christians in charge of the government, then everything would be okay. Okay, wait, that never works good. Yes, we should get Christians involved in the government, but not so that the government is Christian, but so that wise laws are made. But if we say Christians are in charge, it gets weird. Learn. Anyway. So, 1661, Oliver Cromwell is executed. Three years after he died, Cromwell's corpse was dug out, they tried him for treason, they hanged him, they burned him, and then they chopped him up. Because he's an evil, evil, evil man. You go, wait, three years ago, you buried him like you buried James I. You wanted him to be king. You wrapped him in purple robes and said, our king, our king, our king. And now you're killing him after he's dead, which, you know, no skin off his nose, I guess. But still, you just go, wait a minute. I don't want to give Cromwell... I don't, I, this would totally give him delusions of grandeur, but I can't help but think about Jesus at this point where you go, our, our king, our king, our king. No, no, we want Barabbas. He's like, you are so fickle. Fickle. It constantly amazes me how fickle people's 
day, how they're all for Aaron shock one day and the next day. Well, they're not, you know, and it's like, and so people are, are very, um, I'm for this, I'm for this, I'm for this, I'm a supporter, I'm a supporter. Oh, I hate them. Oh, yeah. like, how, how did you do that? George W. Bush. Yeah, George W. Bush, well, he's just a daddy's boy, and he, he can't talk good. He's just dumb. <gasps> he handled that 9-11 thing so well. We're so far, we're so behind him, we're so behind No, he handled that whole war in the, in, in the Middle East so badly. Oh, we hate him, we hate him, we hate him. It's like, okay, just let it go, because you're so fickle, I can't trust what you're... Clinton's awesome, Clinton's awesome, Clinton's awesome. Okay, right with corruption and sexually deviant... No, he's awesome. No, well, he lied, but he didn't, but he didn't. It's like, just stop. Anyway, they took his head, they popped it up on a pole, they displayed it for public ridicule, and for centuries, there are whole books written about Cromwell's skull and where it's being placed on, on display so that people can go and look at it and spit on it and stuff like that, because he's evil. Evil, 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 evil. You know, depends on who you ask. You know, the Roundheads would have said he's wonderful, but... Post death, evil, evil, evil. So, was, no, go ahead. Was Tim doing the other guy? Yeah, the Dougie Matt yeah. Because then sometimes you read, because I was thinking when you were saying Marvel, then I was like, I'm glad that he's executed. Nope. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. He was executed, but not to death. <laughs> so, final thoughts. Let's end with this. Final thoughts on Cromwell. Remembered as a butcher in Ireland for Drogheda and Wexford? except that technically he followed the rules of war, both of those, and it was actually Ireton who actually perpetrated the worst stuff, and yet Ireton was his son-in-law. So, yeah. He's remembered as a hypocrite for disbanding Parliament after beheading Charles I for doing that, and technically it was Fairfax that did that first, and when Cromwell did it, it was because they were incompetent, rife with corruption, except that you still can't serve Parliament and then kick them out when they don't do what you want them to do. He's remembered as a religious zealot who hated anyone who wasn't a Puritan, and yet he's the one who invited the Jews back, pushed for tolerance with things, and it was Parliament that made the worst, most obnoxious laws, and yet Cromwell enforced those laws and encouraged a lot of that. Basically, it comes down to he was extremely pious and extremely powerful, and that's a dangerous combination. Well, depends on the Pope, but yeah, this is a guy who this is a guy who's crazy Christian. I mean, he, he loves to talk about how Christian he is and how important it is to follow, follow the Bible, and the entire army is behind this guy. So you say, you have the Bible in one hand and the sword in the other, and the best trained army in Europe is behind you. That makes you a, just an extremely dangerous person. Um, extremely strict, extremely intense. He's got a big old temper, but Technically, even more to the point, there's a lot of cruelties and a lot of uh, uh, intensities that are done in his name, on his watch, under his authority, and he let it happen. Is he an evil guy? I don't know if I'd say that. Was he uh, Was he somebody I'd like to hang out with? I, uh, I don't think so. I don't think I would agree with him on things. And yet, BBC documentary recently said he's the father of modern democracy and attributed the existence of both the modern British parliamentary system and the United States of America to Cromwell's efforts. But you can make an argument, they're absolutely right. The fact that you have a parliament that actually runs England, you look back and go, argue that that's from Cromwell. The fact that you have people who say, even if I have to rise up in arms against the king, if the king is wrong, I should do that. That's Cromwell. So you look at the American Revolution, you go, arguably, 100 years before, did Cromwell set the stage for that? Cromwell, I would argue, this is the synopsis for all of this, has ultimately judged more by the Cromwellian era and all the stuff that happened during the time he was around that he was kind of the poster child of than for his actions themselves. The stuff that Ireton did, the stuff that Parliament did, the stuff that he did, the ripple effects of the stuff that he did. All that stuff we tend to look at and go, yeah, Cromwell. The Cromwellian era. This is the stuff that happened back then that he was the face of. I'm not giving him a pass. I'm just saying some of the stuff that we, we, we attribute to him, good and bad, was really more stuff other people did around that time. But, I'll finish with one last quote from him. That, none of that would surprise him. He once wrote, and I love this, he said, 
Don't trust the cheering, for the persons would shout just as much if you or I were going to be hanged. The people who sit there and shout and go, yay, when you ride into town, the same people that's going to go, yay, when you're hanging. Absolutely right. So. Anyway, interesting fellow and an interesting time in history, but it reminds us of such, so many of the things that we've talked about here is that very rarely does somebody have only a white hat or only a black hat. It's a little dangerous to say the moralists are in charge and they get to enforce morality. But also, it, it, it shows you've got to understand the context of why people are doing what they're doing. This is a dangerous time in history in terms of morality. Nobody was being very moral. These guys are desperately trying to come in and fix things. How do you go about doing that? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the church, not just our little C church, but your capital C church. And I pray that you give us the wisdom to know, the wisdom to know what's going on around us and the wisdom to know how to actually address it. Lord, help us to change the people, not just the system. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.